I know they disturb you, but I want to flash back all the way to the 1870s, and I want to talk about pollution. Before more sophisticated smelting techniques were developed, and sophisticated is a word that I will have to expand upon and qualify a little later, the system used to reduce the ore in Butte, Montana, and elsewhere was called heap roasting, heap roasting. Large lumps of ore were intermixed with layers of logs. So the size of these heaps varied. Most of them in Butte were about a city block long, six feet below the ground, six or eight feet above the ground. A layer of logs, a layer of ore, a layer of logs, a layer of ore. This whole conglomeration was then set fire to, and slowly, very slowly, the metal was melted out of the ore. Now this produced tremendous quantities, naturally, of smoke. And that smoke contained undiluted oxides of sulfur, which are very toxic, a host of fluorides, which are very toxic, very large quantities of arsenic, which is a dignified old poison. There were numerous results of this almost continuous heap roasting. First of all, it killed people and it killed animals. And secondly, it killed vegetation. You wouldn't believe it today, but ponderosa pine and thick tall grass characterized all of the area around Butte up until about 1880. By 1890, whereas pines and lush grass had covered, as I say, the hills for miles around, there were only four trees alive inside of Butte. For these lonely survivors, the Butte miner expressed, quote, general commiseration. Now, in the Constitutional Convention of 1889, when talk was made, was, was, was occurring of making Butte the capital, a fellow by the name of W.A. Burley, who came from Custer County, the cow country capital of Montana, got up and made a speech giving his impression of Butte. He said, I had not been in bed 30 minutes before I felt that some demoniacal fiend was there, injecting boiling lime into my lungs. It must be very consoling for the citizens of Butte to know that the transition from this world to hell will be so slight. <laughs> William Andrews Clark, whom you're somewhat familiar with, was the convention's, constitutional convention's president. And in a long and glowing speech, from which I'd like to quote now, he said, this smoke is a disinfectant which destroys the microbes that constitute the germs of disease. And he went on to say, it would be a great advantage for other cities to have a little more smoke and business activity and a little less disease. Not only that, said Mr. Clark, the smoke was a treasured cosmetic. And he told the assembly that I must say that the ladies are very fond of this smoky city because there is just enough arsenic there to give them a beautiful pale complexion. And that is the reason the ladies of Butte are renowned wherever they go. In the month of July of that year, 1890, the smoke 
blinded the city for 28 continuous days. The death rate in that month of July skyrocketed. From July to October, there were 192 deaths upon the death certificate, which we've been through, directly attributed to what they called smoke poisoning. Moreover, the hospitals, there were two of them, were overflowing. Some people simply dropped dead on the street. The standard announced, death swings his scythe and cuts down the young and the old. Butte's death rate jumped from 2.1 per thousand to 3.3 per thousand. And the standard carried story after story of what it called, quote, strange and gruesome death on the streets. It seems very conservative to estimate that some three to 4,000 people died as a direct consequence of heat roasting during this period. People who would otherwise have remained perfectly healthy. We will never know how many people's lives were terribly shortened, particularly by arsenic poisoning, because this stuff was just full of arsenic, and arsenic is a very slowly acting poison. But people are now dying at such a rapid rate in Butte that you simply couldn't deny it any longer, nor its cause. So the upshot was that the city council passed an ordinance that there could be no heap roasting unless the smoke was passed through chimneys at least 75 feet high. This is the first that I've heard of the tall stack syndrome, which we've been at ever since, of course. If in the meantime all was well over in Anaconda and, Deer, and the Deer Lodge Valley, it was in fact not well at all. And, and in a sense, they didn't have a problem in Anaconda yet, but they were about to have. However, the smelter was moved after Standard Oil bought the Anaconda Company or Amalgamated Company. The smelter was moved down to the mouth of Warm Springs Creek. Moreover, in the next, in the succeeding few years, it was enormously expanded. The, the moving of the smelter incidentally occurred in 1902. It was huge and it was to get huger. Within a few months now, the Deer Lodge Valley began to have very serious problems. And it was hardly any wonder because about 59,000 pounds of arsenic trioxide and rather notable quantities of sulfur dioxide and copper and antimony and lead and other splendid substances began to flow down the valley all the way to Garrison. And the first thing that happened was that horses and cows began to die very quickly. Hay decreased roughly 75% in quantity in a very short time, the time being about a month. Now the farmers formed themselves into the Deer Lodge Farmers Association, an early environmental group. And the upshot was a lawsuit by the Deer Lodge Farmers Association, again suing the company. This case came before district court in Helena. It's called the Bliss case, B-L-I-S-S. -S. The farmers lost the Bliss case. During the Bliss case, however, a strange thing had happened. The farmers association, now pretty largely in despair, 
had sent a petition to a very peculiar man, not really with much hope that anyone would read the petition, but this peculiar man did, and he happened to be President of the United States, and his name was Theodore Roosevelt, and he made a note to himself, having read the petition, that the next time he came west, he would look into this matter, and that was to have some very peculiar results. And he happened to appoint an extremely strong Attorney General of the United States, whose name was Charles Bonaparte, a distant relative of Napoleon's. The latter, after he had thought about the petition for a while, he sent to Montana to look into the complaints of the Deer Lodge Farmers Association. On October 21st, 1908, Bonaparte brought the amalgamated file to the White House personally. And in the room was the senator from Montana, Joseph M. Dixon. At this time, Dixon was not violently anti-anaconda company. If you've read parts of your second textbook, you know that he is about to become violently anaconda company, but he isn't in 1908. I'm John Hooks. And I'm Matt Newman. And this is Land Grab. Welcome back to Land Grab. In the last two chapters, we went deep on the events on the ground in the Flathead and in Washington as the allotment bill was passed by Congressman Joseph Dixon and the white community of Missoula scrambled to find ways to make the opening of the reservation profitable. We looked at how the government broke up the reservation through allotment assigning tribal members some of the least productive land on the reservation, and spreading out allotments as much as possible, isolating each family on their own plot and ending the open range. And we ended things last chapter looking at the influx of tens of thousands of scissorbills and honeyockers swarming into the state to claim some of the last available homestead land inspired by railroad propaganda that suggested dryland farming in Montana was a new gold rush in the 1910s. In this episode, we're going to look at the collapse of that homestead boom in the 1920s. But we're also going to look at a deeply connected, concurrent story featuring two characters we've already met before. Joseph M. Dixon and the Anaconda Company. 
Copper Mining Company. In the first part of Landgrab, we spent a lot of time talking about how the development of regional corporate oligarchies was the dominant economic trend of the later half of the 19th century. But the dominant trend of this second part of the show, and the dominant trend throughout the 20th century in Montana, is going to see these local monopolies sell out, and huge multinational conglomerates move in. And the first and foremost of those multinationals was none other than Standard Oil, who swooped in on Marcus Daly and struck a deal with him in 1899 to absorb the Anaconda into the behemoth amalgamated copper company, a huge conglomeration of most of the world's copper market. In the first decade of the 20th century, Amalgamated fought tooth and nail for total control of Butte Copper and Montana politics, until it developed a complete stranglehold over the entire state. Using the constant looming threat of a shutdown to hold Montana hostage for whatever they wanted. In this chapter, we're going to look at how Amalgamated's vicious rule and the homestead bust of 1919 led to an epic confrontation between the company and Joseph Dixon, one that devastated Montana in the 1920s, forcing the state into a full-blown mini-depression a decade before the Great Depression would sweep over the rest of the country. What we have produced here has always had its price set elsewhere, and only very, very rarely by the marketplace or under the free enterprise system. Chapter 8. Kicked by a Copper Boot. There is no parallel for the viciousness, there is no parallel for the callousness, there is no excuse for this thing. And it's going to happen again, the threat to shut down, uh, murder is going to take place. This is a story unparalleled for its violence, unparalleled for its corruption, unparalleled for its viciousness in any other state in the Union. Uh, this is an interview with uh, Mr. John Toole on uh, July 16, 1987. Our main topic will be the depression of the 1930s. Uh, John, uh, rather than just jump in uh, to the depression of the 1930s, I think it would be good to get a little bit of background um, about you, your your family history is well known, but if we could start by just mentioning uh, the fact that uh, your your family was involved in the lumber industry, for one, that I know of. Uh, originally, I understand that your eventually um, your family uh, had uh, uh, directors and managers in the Bonner Mill, correct? Yes, in, uh, in 1897, my mother's father, Kenneth Ross, went to work for Marcus Daly. Marcus Daly had um, just purchased the mill and the timberlands from A.B. Hammond. And Daly hired my grandfather to um, first cruise the timber, then take over the management 
of the whole operation. He was there then until 1926, at which time he retired. And um, this is Kenneth Ross you're talking about. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he was um, then retired and died in 1933. This audio is from an interview with a man named John H. Toole. He's the brother of our friend K. Ross Toole, and he's talking about their family's connections to the Anaconda Copper Mining Company. The Toole's grandfather, and K. Ross's namesake, Kenneth Ross, was the superintendent of the Bonner Mill after Marcus Daly purchased it from Andrew Hammond in the 1890s. This chapter is all about the Anaconda Company and their ascension to total control of Montana in the first two decades of the 20th century. And we're going to hear a lot from the tools, especially Kay Ross, because he is one of the best people to tell this story of the company. Not just because of his family connections, but because he dedicated much of his professional life as a historian to uncovering and recording the true nature of the company and its rule over Montana. Before we get ahead of ourselves, we need to go back to the cusp of the 20th century and take a look at how the Anaconda Copper Company became the Amalgamated Copper Company. You have seen capital, of course, now. You're getting tired of that, but I have to emphasize it. Coming in from outside via Hagen and Hearst, by 1890, however, Boston bankers, those who had invested in Michigan, about which you know all, have begun investing very, very heavily in Butte. Boston bankers. By the spring of 1891, the Boston and Consolidated Copper and Silver Mining Company netted $3 million from their operations in Butte. All of the stock owned in Boston. The, Bust, the Butte and Boston Company employed 10,000 men, 10,000 men in Butte in 1891. They owned about 600 acres of mineral land in and around Butte. Now, in 1891, George Hurst died. The Anaconda Copper Mining Company ceased being a closed corporation and went on the regular stock market. Notice one more fact, which is going to assume importance. There are probably a dozen mines competing on the hill now. This hot competition of the mining companies on the hill throughout the 1890s simply cries out for an attempt to pool the whole works and establish a monopoly. Now, I want to go back to the bribery session of 1899 for a moment so that we can proceed. While Montanans were on their binge, and while the bribery session was going on, something happened of some moment, and it was this. There was a little fellow by the name of E.D. Matz. Don't worry about the name, because this is the only time you ever hear of him. He introduced a bill in the legislature, House Bill Number 132. The bill, though it seemed completely innocuous, is important. All it said was that two companies could merge or one company could buy out another company without 
minority stockholder consent. This bill was necessary because the Supreme Court of the state had previously said, no, minority stockholder consent is necessary if you're going to merge or if one company is going to buy out another. Now comes House Bill number 132 saying no minority stockholder consent is not important. W.A. Clark wrote an interesting letter. He took time off from his bribing efforts to write this letter, and I want to quote from it. It is a matter of great concern to me, this bill. The First National Bank of New York, the Northern Pacific Railroad Company, Senator Carter, and the Standard Oil people are all working hard to get this bill through, and I'm sure it will be very much to my interests if they succeed. With that kind of power behind it, it's no wonder the bill passed very handily. The governor, R.B. Smith, didn't like it a bit. He smelled a rat, or perhaps I should say he smelled oil. And he sent a memo to the legislature, both House and Senate, in which he said, and if you like mixed metaphors, listen to this. I tell you, Standard Oil is behind this bill, and if you do not assert your independence now and defeat this measure, it will be too late when the tentacles of this octopus have fastened their fangs on the strong limbs of this fair commonwealth. The bill passed. The governor didn't veto it because it passed so handily that he didn't have the votes to override it. And on April 27, 1899, it was announced that the Anaconda Copper Mining Company had been sold to the Standard Oil Company. Not the Standard Oil Company of Indiana or Ohio or California because that's after the breakup by the Justice Department of the Standard Oil Company of the United States, the largest trust in the world. Clark went to New York. Now, Clark maintained 12 months out of the year, a suite in the Astor Hotel. But this time he took uh, a suite at the Netherlands Hotel, where Daly lay dying. And he called in a reporter from the New York Herald, and in a statement which is somewhat unparalleled for vituperation, he said in closing, Marcus Daly is now dying, the victim of his own spleen. He is the most violent-tempered man I have ever known. Marcus Daly was made president and continued to run the day-to-day operations of Anaconda, but ill health led to his death in 1901, and his controlling interest in leadership of the company passed to a man named John D. Ryan. A shrewd and ruthless negotiator, Ryan and his right-hand man, Cornelius Con Kelly, set about acquiring total dominance of the Butte copper market. Uh, the next three years are filled with great confusion. Understandably so, because Montana has had a homegrown corporation up until now. Granted, it had enormous power. Granted that it had messed up the state in many respects. Granted that by direction and indirection, it had been corrupt. It was still a Montana corporation. Marcus Daly was still a Montana. It was our own corruption. It was our own company. Now it is not. It is Standard Oil. What happens? Standard Oil formed a holding company called the Amalgamated Copper Company. What does a holding company do? It holds other companies. It itself 
does not produce anything. In your reading, if you do any, you will often see amalgamated and anaconda used interchangeably. They're all really one and the same thing. The operating company is still called the Anaconda Copper Mining Company. Now, all of this is financed by the National City Bank of New York. Owned by whom? Owned by Standard Oil. In their first moves as a trust to monopolize the entire Butte copper market under their umbrella, Amalgamated used tactics and learned important lessons that would come to have recurrent, devastating effects in Montana. Amalgamated then issued stock on the regular stock market. That is to say what it really did was to water stock. It sells more stock on the market than it had value to back up the stock. Now, that's an oversimplification of watering, but it will do. Let me give you an example. Amalgamated immediately begins to buy the Boston properties. Do you remember how I told you Boston had moved heavily into Anaconda and in Butte? Okay. Now, they bought Anaconda, the big, big one, but now they start to buy Boston property. They paid, for instance, $36 million for the first purchase of Boston property, but it issued stock in Amalgamated, under the name of Amalgamated, on the basis of this acquisition, to the tune of $80 million. There is, in other words, a $44 million profit here in a couple of weeks. Really a good business. With a huge amount of copper now under their direct control, Amalgamated then initiated what was known as a pump-and-dump scheme with the trust's stock. Now, with all of this activity and an enormous national campaign of uh, planted material in the newspapers and the magazines, copper stocks go up very rapidly on the market. Basically, they artificially inflated their share price raking in profits as ordinary people flocked to buy the rising stock. Everybody buys amalgamated stock at about 24. Who's everybody? You and me, you and I. We buy amalgamated stock at 24. But this market is controlled, absolutely controlled, by the insiders at Standard Oil or amalgamated, as you choose. They do not buy at 24. They're selling to us, to you and to me. Then Amalgamated tanked the value by half, forcing all of the regular people to sell off at a steep loss that the company gleefully purchased back up before then stabilizing the share price somewhere in the middle. And by that little maneuver, they have made another $30 million. You see, we're dealing here with a lot of power and a lot of money, and it's moved right in, and and the center of activity is Butte, Montana, or let me say more properly, Montana. Over the years, Amalgamated would do this again and again, making huge profits for its executives and devastating working Montanans every time. Butte Copper had been split up between Anaconda, which was the biggest operation, and the conglomerations of mines owned by William Andrews Clark and the mines owned by Boston-based copper interests. 
But while the Boston properties had been easy for Standard Oil and amalgamated to acquire, the Clark-owned interests in Butte proved a much more difficult target. Clark's defense against Amalgamated was led by a man named F. Augustus Heinze, a ruthless and charismatic mining engineer who was extremely gifted in the art of corporate subterfuge. Joseph Kinsey Howard, a Montana writer who wrote Montana High, White, and Handsome, the best history of Montana, I think, that has ever been written, called him this gay, handsome, industrial desperado and demagogue the most adept pirate in the history of American capitalist privateering. Well, he certainly was all of that and maybe more. He was handsome, he was a bachelor, the ladies were reputedly very fond of him, he was well-educated, and he was as crooked as a corkscrew, which is a lucky thing because he was dealing with Standard Oil. He was a spellbinding orator. Uh, we have a lot of his speeches because, again, they were printed. But he once spoke to 10,000 miners from the courthouse steps in Butte in one very famous speech given in October 1903. Let me just quote from it. These people are my enemies, fierce, bitter, and implacable. But they are your enemies, too. If they crush me today, they will crush you tomorrow. They will force you to dwell in Standard Oil houses while you live, and they will bury you in Standard Oil coffins when you die. So one of his gimmicks was this capacity to influence people with oratory. What were the other gimmicks? Well, he did not buy legislators. He bought judges. The only part of the government in Silverbow County that Anaconda didn't own at the time was the judiciary, so Heinze got in first and bought the county's two judges. Then he took advantage of a provision in federal mining law known as the Apex Law that allowed him to file a small claim right in the center of Anaconda's properties on land they had overlooked and dig down and out, stealing Anaconda copper from inside the heart of its empire. The second gimmick was called the Apex Law. Apex Law. It's part of the fear, fearfully and wonderfully made federal mining law. Now, it's very complex, but what it really says is that if a vein of ore apexes or breaks surface on your surface claim, you can follow that vein wherever it goes. So what he did was file a little claim right smack dab in the middle of Amalgamated's or Anaconda's property, which they had overlooked, and then he claimed that all of Anaconda's or Amalgamated's ore apexed on his property. <laughs> he then hired, with the help of William Andrews Clark, a big crew and began stealing copper, the richest veins, the piccolo vein of the Anaconda Company, working on 24-hour shifts, stealing them blind. Amalgamated resisted fiercely, and there was literal warfare in the tunnels of Butte for a while. Amalgamated then went to war, underground, literally, with lye, with dynamite, with pick handles. The problem was that these miners, even though they worked for Amalgamated, were terribly loyal to Heinze. This is where the charisma comes in. 
They couldn't get to first base in underground warfare. They lost underground. Well, now what does this mean? In the meantime, Heinze is just mining copper hand over fist, very, very rich copper. So the world's greatest trust is being robbed blind and stopped cold by Heinze and Eggby's better judge and the Apex Law. But their only official recourse was through the courts, which Heinze owned. Backed into a corner, Amalgamated turned to a strategy that would go on to cripple Montana again and again throughout the 20th century. It's a date that should live in infamy. On October 22nd, 1903, remember the date, the Anaconda Company announced the complete shutdown of all of its enterprises in Montana. Three quarters of all the wage earners in Montana were thrown out of work. There was no unemployment compensation. There was nothing. Out of work, laid off. There was no relief, nothing but the Salvation Army. No unemployment, no Medicare, no Medicaid, no nothing. This totally paralyzed this state economically. Total economic paralysis of a sovereign state. It's happened in no other state in the Union ever. But it happened here, and it lasted for a long time. In October 1903, Amalgamated shut down their operations in Montana, devastating the state's economy and sweating out Montana for a special session that would pass a bill allowing a change of venue law. What did they do after they had sweated us out in a, an absolutely critical situation? They announced on the front pages of their newspapers that if the governor would call a special session of the Montana legislature, and if that legislature would pass a fair trials bill providing for a change of venue, if either party to a civil suit considered the judge prejudiced, Montanans could go back to work. But if the legislature were not called, And if that legislature didn't behave itself, by God, they'd starve Montana to death. The legislature was called, the bill was passed, and Montanans were permitted to go back to work. There is no parallel for the viciousness, there is no parallel for the callousness, there is no excuse for this thing that happens beginning in 1903. And it's gonna happen again, the threat to shut down, Uh, murder is going to take place. This is a story unparalleled for its violence, unparalleled for its corruption, unparalleled for its viciousness in any other state in the Union. The successful extortion of a new trials law was a significant moment for Amalgamated and Montana. It was the moment that the company really called everybody else's bluff. We see here once again the enormity of corporate arrogance and the impotence of government and ordinary people in the face of that power. The power to shut down or to threaten to shut down the power of the threat of the loss of jobs. We see here again the efficiency of the threat of closing down, which is something that I'm going to refer to again and again and again in succeeding lectures. There was a real paradigm shift After this, Standard Oil had their trump card, and they could play it whenever they wanted. Their ascension to total control of Butte Copper 
and daily life in Montana became a formality at this point. Clark and Heinze immediately sold out after the new law was passed, and that got rid of any valid corporate competition for Amalgamated in the state. These acquisitions also brought Amalgamated control of Anaconda lumbering operations, which included the mill in Hamilton and the big Blackfoot mill that Hammond had sold to Daly, as well as the Milltown Dam and the Missoula Power and Light Company, which had been bought off Hammond by Clark. By 1910, Ryan, Kelly, and Rockefeller had turned Amalgamated into one of the largest trusts in the world and the kingpin of the global copper industry. On the ground in Montana, the company, as they were known, became the dominant political and economic force and the unified, reviled villain to the working masses. As Joe Dixon and the Missoula elite were moving to allot the Flathead Reservation, this was what was going on in the background and in the rings of power above those players. Throughout his political rise, which we covered in detail in the last two chapters, Joe Dixon was very much a company man, a happy vessel for whatever the business interests of the state were keen on, especially if there was room to cut him in. We left off with Joe last chapter, early on in his senatorial career, when he was facilitating the sell-off of indigenous lands during the allotment, passing the Villa Sites Irrigation and Land Sales Amendments to his original bill. But he was also getting deeply intertwined with President Theodore Roosevelt. And that connection is going to lead to Dixon finding himself squarely at the center of a confrontation between the company and the president. We're going to take a break here, and then we're going to come back and pick up with Joe and see how this confrontation forms and how it leads to a political metamorphosis of sorts and a turning point in his career that matches up with a turning point in Montana history. Hey there, Landgrab listener. John here. I just wanted to hop on and remind y'all that Landgrab is supported by listener donations. Our friends at the Montana Mint help us publish and publicize the show, but the production is really just Matt and I. We got a really great response after we put out our first episode, and we're really grateful to everybody that chipped in and helped us realize this first season. We want to keep making Land Grab as long as there's an audience and a market for it. To make the show at the level of quality that we think it deserves is a very labor-intensive and time-consuming process. And listener support allows us to put in the time and effort that is required. So if you want to help us grow Land Grab and make more of the show, the most helpful thing would be to chuck in a buck or two which you can do at landgrabpodcast.com slash donate. 
Again, that is landgrabpodcast.com, all one word, slash donate. If contributing to the show isn't an option for you, there are still plenty of ways that you can help us out by spreading the word about the show. Tell your friends, recommend it to every tourist you run into, and you can share our stuff on social media. We're at LandGrabPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That sort of stuff really helps draw more eyes and ears to the show. It's been so nice to see the kind of response that the show has been getting. And again, we really want to thank everybody who has helped us so far. But for now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back. In the intro to this episode, we talked about an investigation into arsenic pollution from the Anaconda smelter that had been undertaken by Theodore Roosevelt's Attorney General, Charles Bonaparte. The Bonaparte investigation was instigated by a lawsuit brought by Deer Lodge farmers against the company, known as the Bliss Case, and found concrete evidence that arsenic clouds from the smelter were poisoning the land for hundreds of miles around and killing thousands of cattle and horses. The same toxic clouds that had killed hundreds of people on the streets of Butte in the heap-roasting days now spilled out from the top of the smelter and choked the Deer Lodge Valley. Bonaparte came out and went back to Washington and made a report to Roosevelt saying that the valley was indeed being poisoned, but that they could hang a lawsuit on the fact that so was the national forest around Anaconda, around Deer Lodge, around Butte, around Garrison, etc. This was national forest, and therefore the government had a peg upon which to hang its lawsuit. We have all come, I think, to think of, of, of Theodore Roosevelt as being a very impulsive man, and I suppose indeed he was. But in this case, he was not. He recognized power when he saw it, namely Standard Oil. Bonaparte was a very, very bright man, but he also knew power when he saw it. And he wrote a memo to the president, from which I quote, because of overproduction, all, all the large copper mining interests in the West would be more than willing to close down temporarily. And amalgamated at Butte, Anaconda, and elsewhere has already prepared to curtail production. If we sue now, they would doubtless seize upon it as a pretext to close and let the cry go out that under the persecution of the administration, thousands of miners had been thrown out of work. And so Bonaparte's advice to Roosevelt was, quote, let us wait until their stocks are low. In the meantime, let us prepare most thoroughly. And that they did. They sent experts into the field from what was then called the Bureau of Forestry and Geology. They studied the soil. They studied the wilting pine needles on national forest lands. They sampled the air with surprisingly sophisticated ambient air measuring devices. And when they returned, what they had found deeply shocked Roosevelt. Among other things, he dispatched the famous Gifford Pinchot to oversee the entire operation which he was now planning for Standard Oil and Amalgamated. 
The Attorney General was told that action against Amalgamated should be given the Department of Justice's highest priority. The Attorney General reported, and I quote, the smelter was placed in its present location exclusively for the convenience of its owners. The choice of the site was deliberate and with full knowledge of the damage which would result from the operation of the smelter. And he continued, sulfur dioxide is the most destructive chemical agent known to science as far as vegetation is concerned. Physicians here testify fully to its deleterious effects upon the human system, especially those persons suffering from any respiratory ailment. The president sent a note back to Bonaparte. Press on, be thorough, do not let them escape. I will give this matter my continuing personal attention. I'd like to remind you that this is a very powerful president of the United States a very powerful attorney general and they say press on we will give this the highest priority of the department of justice on october 21st 1908 bonaparte brought the amalgamated file to the white house personally and in the room was the senator from montana joseph m dixon at this time dixon was not violently anti-anaconda company. If you've read parts of your second textbook, you know that he is about to become violently anaconda company, but he isn't in 1908. <laughs> and he warned the president, with whom he was a very, of whom he was a very close friend. In fact, he was destined to handle President Roosevelt's Bull Moose campaign. That such a lawsuit would mean catastrophe for Montana, and he wished that the president would cease and desist. Roosevelt replied to Dixon that he didn't care, that it was his last term anyway, that he wanted this company stopped, politics or no politics, or otherwise he couldn't handle and nobody else could handle the poisoning of the West on a much broader basis. But he said that he would nonetheless... Roosevelt's preparations put his administration squarely in Standard Oil's crosshairs and left Joe Dixon with a choice, company or president. Dixon had surfed on the coattails of corporate influence all the way to the Senate, but there was still an idealist somewhere inside him, and he was quickly seduced by T.R.'s classic charisma. At the beginning of the 20th century, something happened to America. Teddy Roosevelt. He was an explosion upon the political scene. Dynamic, outspoken, Warm, colorful, exciting, inspiring. Bursting with vitality, he was a man of action, a fighter, a leader of men. And under the surface was a man of ideals, with a passionate belief in America, its people, and its principles. Dixon eventually found himself in Roosevelt's inner circle and subscribed to his trust-busting belief system to the point that he even doubled down with the administration, even after the president kept Bonaparte's investigation open. And so Dixon supported the, you know, that kind of thing, and he supported conservation generally. Was was a just a hero worshiper of Theodore Roosevelt, who was president at the time, and he was a conservation president. Roosevelt even tapped Dixon to run his Bull Moose campaign after the ex-president split from the Republican Party. 
Dixon managed to replace Clark in the U.S. Senate in 1906. And uh, he remained in the U.S. Senate for a full six-year term. And then in 1912, when Roosevelt, having elect, left office, Theodore Roosevelt left office, came back to run again in 1912 and couldn't get the Republican nomination from William Howard Taft. This audio is from Bob Brown's Stories and Stones presentation on Joe Dixon, which we played in the last couple chapters. So he left the Republican Party and formed the Progressive Party. And Joe Dixon left with him and became the national chairman of the Progressive Party. Well, now the Republican Party's divided between the Taft wing, the regular Republicans, the elephant Republicans, the progressive wing, the bull moose Republicans, and the Democrats, the, you know, the, with their emblem, the donkey. And uh, the result was that the Democrats benefited from the script, from the split, and they won the elections nationwide, most of them. And Woodrow Wilson was elected president, and uh, Dixon was defeated for the U.S. Senate. So he was out of, out of public office. If you remember from the first part, this is essentially the same career path as Dixon's predecessor, old corkscrew Tom Carter, who had gone from Congress to running Benjamin Harrison's failed re-election campaign 30 years earlier in 1892. After the election defeat, Roosevelt essentially gave up on the pollution lawsuit, passing it off to his successor, and Dixon fought against irrelevance by returning to Missoula and taking up his role as Missoulian owner and editor with renewed vigor. Dixon had owned the paper since the Merck and the First National Bank arranged a loan for him to purchase it, but he hadn't really been involved in running of the paper, essentially functioning as a figurehead to obscure the real owned interest. But now that he was out of a job and a political platform, he used the inches of the Missoulian editorial column as his soapbox, and waged verbal war against the amalgamated interests, rather conveniently leaving out that those same corporate interests had placed him in office and at the paper in the first place. But he continued to own the Missoulian, and it was the only major paper in the state uh, other than the Great Falls Tribune, they didn't really, the Anaconda Company didn't really own it, but they heavily influenced it, and they <laughs> owned and influenced the other dailies in the state except for the Missoulian. So Dixon editorialized very independently, and one of the things he thought should happen in Montana was that the mining industry should pay taxes. Can you imagine anything more radical than that? Dixon's war of words with the company had an inevitable end, as Amalgamated moved to quash all dissent and acquired the vast majority of the state's newspapers, including Dixon's Missoulian, in 1917. They put up a bunch of money and started buying newspapers. Now, they'd already bought, with the Anaconda Company, the Anaconda Standard. But now they buy Clark's Butte Miner. In fact, they bought every daily newspaper in the state of Montana except one. And this is the origin of the captive press. And remember, Amalgamated or Anaconda owns those papers. Totally a captive press until 1957. It's the only state in the union that had a totally captive press acting first and invariably in the interest of one corporation, never in the interests of integrity in the news or anything else. I can remember growing up with those newspapers, you would never know that the legislature was in session. Not that it mattered, because the legislature was also owned by Amalgamated. And I'll have a good deal more to say about that also. Joe then spent the next few years in relative obscurity on his cattle ranch near Polson, 
before a wave of economic and environmental ruin began sweeping the state and pushed him back into the political fray as a changed man, sort of. I have a few things I want to say about the bust, the Hanyaker bust. You all know that it was rooted fundamentally in drought. In 1919, a generationally devastating drought swept over Montana, bringing the raging homestead boom to a catastrophic end. A period of unusually wet years in the 1910s had fed into the unsustainable dream of consistent year-in, year-out returns on small, dryland wheat farms. World War I then drove up the price of wheat and copper. High employment sent money flowing into the local economy, and land values skyrocketed. Throughout the decade, farmers and ranchers increasingly overextended themselves, building new improvements, buying new machinery, and adding acreage all on credit as they attempted to maximize their returns. Across the state, new banks and towns sprung up to serve these new residents with loans and services. But the inevitable drought started in 1916 and slowly, surely spread across the state, reaching a devastating peak in 1919. I'm sorry to bombard you with statistics, but I have to, so that you can get some idea of the magnitude of what now happens with the drought, which begins in 1917. In 1918, Shelby got, during the whole year, 8.8 inches of rain, of precipitation. You can't grow crops under 12. You're lucky if you can grow them at 12. It ought to be 15, but at 8.8, nothing. In 1919, Shelby, 6.8 inches of precipitation for the entire year. Haver, 8.8 inches, 1918, 7.7, 1919. In the wet month of June, 1919, 0.0. 0.09 inches of precipitation or rain at Bozeman. For the whole year of 1919, Hill County, 1.5 inches of precipitation. And then as usual, because as I say, drought is a very complex phenomenon. It's not just a lack of moisture. Comes the wind, which is invariable. Comes humidity, low, low humidity. 1919, the average humidity in eastern Montana was 4%. That's enough to crack your skin. In eastern and central Montana, topsoil dried into dust and blew away with the wind. The prairie cracked and burned under massive grass fires. And then came, as you know, the grasshoppers. And with the grasshoppers, and they probably were as damaging as the grasshoppers, the cutworms and the wireworms. And then came the prairie fires, what was left to burn, which wasn't very much. Literally, the surface of the earth itself burned in huge prairie fires. And tens of thousands of homesteaders simply abandoned their farms, leaving the state entirely or crowding into the cities, living in itinerant camps. How many people were involved here? It's very difficult to say. Because, you see, we only take the census every two years, ten years. 
1910, the real rush had not yet begun. By 1920, when the next census occurs, the exodus has already begun. So we simply can't count. We can't use the census. It's, it's essentially useless. But by piecing together the records in land offices throughout Montana, and by using other statistics where they're available, it is a, it is a safe guess that a minimum of 80,000 people came into eastern and central Montana between 1900 and 1919. It is also safe to say that by 1923, 60,000 of them had left, had fled, had gone bankrupt. Now remember, there is no government involved here. There are no relief agencies. The Red Cross is still busy in Europe. There is no federal government to declare a disaster area with payment to the farmers and the ranchers. There's nothing there but, as a matter of fact, the Salvation Army, which was much too small to do any good. By August of 1919, Hill County alone had about 300 destitute people, and by destitute, I mean destitute. Nothing to eat, no place to go except to get the hell out of there, which is precisely what they did. So that you get, by September of 1919, about 40,000 people in eastern and central Montana without the essentials of life. There isn't any, there are no soup kitchens, there's no help at all. As small farms collapsed, regional and multinational syndicates swooped in, buying up the available land at rock bottom prices and consolidating power within the hands of a homogenous corporate view. An insurgent labor movement started to organize miners in Butte and farmers across the state, fueling a populist political uprising. Amalgamated responded in kind by brutally fighting against organized labor, including the lynching of Frank Little in 1917 and the opening of fire upon a picket line in the 1920 Anaconda Road Massacre. If you want to learn more about those stories, I'd recommend checking out Riches Hill or Death in the West, who both have already done whole podcasts about all of that. The devastation of the agriculture industry had serious impacts throughout much of the working and middle class of the state, while further enriching the entrenched elite. The obvious inequalities on display led to a groundswell of populist political activism, especially among the state's farmers, and shaped the 1920 election. The Nonpartisan League, a left-wing party advocating for state control of banks and mills and direct relief for farmers, ran a slate of candidates in the Democratic primary. And on the Republican side, a contested five-way primary was fought out across the state. One of its main figures was a barnstorming populist progressive Republican calling for a redistribution of the tax burden, designed to free the farmer of burdensome property taxes and force the mining industry into paying its fair share none other than Joseph M. Dixon. We're going to take another break here, but when we come back, we're going to go through Joe Dixon's unlikely path to the governor's mansion in 1920 and his turbulent years running the state in the 1920s as he wages a war with Amalgamated, filled with controversy and contradiction that defines a decade of Montana history. Uh, 
at the university here because I don't know for any group that I like to talk to better than a group of students who are studying history and particularly about history of Montana. When, when Judge Erickson was the one that ran against Dixon Dixon said to him, how much money did the company spend on you to beat me? He said, not as much as they spent on you to beat Bert Wheeler. Landgrab is proud to be part of the Montana Mint Podcast Network. Be sure to check out the Montana Mint's other shows, which include Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, which I hosted with author Brian D'Ambrosio. In that show, we dig into some of the most interesting murder mysteries in Montana history. They also have the Grizz Fan Podcast, the number one podcast this side of Montana, focused on all things Grizz football. The Montana Mint Sports Pod is a weekly show focused on all things Big Sky Conference. And the Montana Trivia Championship is a game show devoted entirely to our great state. You can get all of these shows on all of your major podcast apps, and you can check out the Montana Mint on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. Welcome back. When announcing his candidacy in early March 1920, Joseph Dixon laid out a platform that he branded as a sensible middle path between the two political extremes of the nonpartisan league and the reactionary corporate interests. He called for a redistribution of the tax system, which had almost singularly relied on what critics labeled a confiscatory property tax for the vast majority of the state's revenue. This tax balance shifted the burden onto small farmers and homesteaders and away from big copper companies, for example, who paid essentially zero tax. The solution Dixon called for was an increase in the inheritance tax and taxes on the mining and the burgeoning oil industry in the state. As one can imagine, that platform was unsatisfactory for the company, which began casting about for alternatives. In 1920, he ran for governor. Well, the Anaconda Company thought he is the last guy we want to have elected governor. 
But the, he was running as a Republican again, and it was a three-way split. Montana had only recently instituted a direct primary. And by the time a filing for the August primary election was over in July, six candidates had entered the race, including two last-minute entrances by Ronald Higgins of Missoula and Harry L. Wilson of Billings. And the, the company's candidate for, for governor was a guy by the name of Henry Wilson, who I believe had never held office before. He was just a good old cowpoke, common sense guy, <laughs> just a perfect guy to be governor of Montana, just good common horse sense, not the least bit radical like that Joe Dixon who shut down every mine in Montana and didn't care about it, you know, just because he was tax happy and that sort of thing. What resulted was a wild and even scandalous primary where Dixon was assailed from all sides. The company papers called him a Bolshevist, no less dangerous than the nonpartisan league. They claimed Dixon would institute socialism and destroy industry in Montana. And the progressive Republican papers railed against Dixon as an incompetent hypocrite and a turncoat, suggesting he was the one who was copper-plated all along. Ominous newspaper ads with the headline, Senator Dixon, how did you make your money? Ran throughout the state, alleging all of Dixon's business and political success to the support of the interests. This character assassination of Dixon in the primary was largely orchestrated by a man named Edwin B. Craighead and his son, Barkley. Edwin had been the president of the University of Montana before Dixon had used his influence as a senator to get him removed. And now Craighead owned a newspaper called The New Northwest, in which he printed his attacks on Dixon. And he even syndicated those attacks to papers around the state. In his articles, Craighead accused Dixon of, among other things, receiving the entirety of his campaign funds from the company and other interests, embezzling $50,000 of Teddy Roosevelt's Bull Moose campaign funds, owning several properties of ill repute in Missoula, including supposedly a brothel and the still-standing Oxford Saloon. Throughout the campaign, Edwin and Barkley would follow Dixon across the state and heckle him with their accusations from the audience. On the eve of the primary election, Craig had even challenged Dixon to a public debate at the Missoula Baseball Park. Dixon initially agreed to show up and publicly refute Craighead's charge, but he chickened out and bailed at the last minute, holding his own speech at the Liberty Theater. As Election Day arrived, the Nonpartisan League looked to be a formidable force running against the Democratic establishment, while on the Republican side, Dixon, Ford, and Wilson appeared to be the only viable candidates. Wilson, with company support, was running for the Eastern and Conservative vote, while Dixon and Ford were competing for the progressive and farm vote. It appeared to be an even race, largely up for grabs, but Dixon had an ace in the hole in his enduring friendship and partnership with C.H. McLeod. McLeod was the kingpin of Missoula at this point, running Andrew Hammond's enterprises in Montana, and had formed his own political machine called the Montana Development Association with a Billings businessman named William Selvage. The MDA organized the leaders of Montana's so-called middle-class business community, the local barons operating a rung below the company, and had whipped them into financial and political support for Dixon from the start. 
McLeod even introduced Dixon at his pre-election speech at the Liberty Theater. The MDA's support proved pivotal, and Dixon eked out a narrow victory in the primary. While the company was upset that Dixon had beat their man Wilson, that was nothing compared to the disaster that now threatened them from the Democratic side. Well, in the three-way split, Dixon won the Republican nomination. And in the same primary election, a very radical liberal won the Democratic nomination uh, by the name of Burton K. Wheeler, who went on to hold other office later on. But that was during a really a radical phase in his life, and he went by the nickname Bolshevik Burt. Well, the company thought, golly, you know, you can't get a piece of onion skin paper to the left of Wheeler. And, well, Dixon's a dangerous reformer. At least he's an intelligent guy. And so given this horrible choice, they supported Dixon. Well, of course, in those days. Now, they went for Dixon for the nomination. They were for attorney in Billings. But when Dixon was nominated, they, they didn't like Dixon because they hadn't agreed with him when he was in the Senate. And, and but they, they hated me so much worse than they hated Dixon. That was the question in their minds of the lesser of two evils. The populist groundswell inspired by the economic collapse had carried the entire nonpartisan league slate to victory in the Democratic primary. The nonpartisan league was led by their gubernatorial nominee, a man whose voice you heard at the intro to this part of the episode, Burton K. Wheeler, branded by the papers at this point as Bolshevik Burt. Wheeler is still idolized by many Montanans, and he gets a lot of credit as a progressive hero, but he was far more complicated than that. And his true colors would be revealed later in his career when he got back to Washington after becoming a senator. There he was the leader of the isolationist America First movement that sympathized with Nazi Germany, and he worked as a high-level corporate lawyer advocating for right-wing causes after he left the Senate. But at this point, he was still seen as a hero on the left, and someone who defended farmers and labor organizers as a U.S. attorney throughout the height of nationalist paranoia during World War I. Faced with a choice between bad and worse, Amalgamated and the other corporate interests of the state, Missoula Mercantile included, chose bad and supported Dixon in the general. You see, they spent great deal of money on Dixon that time. Con Kelly told me one time, years and years later, that he got off of the train here in Missoula. He met Dixon on the train, and he got off of the train because he thought Dixon was all right with him. And, and the banks were closed. And he said they had him open the bank and drew down $10,000 to give it to Dixon to help in the campaign against me. The interests supported Dixon financially, but rather than open public support or glorification of the Republican nominee's virtues, the campaign strategy of the company's interlocking press and Dixon himself was one of constant, breathless, red scare fear-mongering. Every company paper, every company paper, every great big billboard was covered with a big hand dripping with blood. And the women from the society sections of the cities went over and debuted in the 
labor uh, and said, if he's elected governor, they'll have, they'll raise your children an institution. Newspapers portrayed Wheeler and the Nonpartisan League as bloodthirsty revolutionaries who would impose a totalitarian government and even make free love in Montana. And then they said that there'd be free love. Free love in Montana if I was elected, like there was in North Dakota. Dick Kilroy was the editor of the paper in Butte, the Anaconda He had been the editor of Heinze's paper, and when Heinze sold out, he then went with the company, as did a lot of other people that I could name. <coughs> and they went. So then, I had the night before election, uh, we spoke from the balcony of the Butte Hotel, we called it Liberty Hall. And I said, you all know Dick Kilroy, you know the kind of a life he led. I said, let me ask you one question. Would Dick Kilroy be living in Butte if there was free love over in North Dakota? <laughs> Dixon's stump speech devoted almost its entire runtime to an explanation of the origins of socialism and examples of supposedly socialist policies in the Nonpartisan League platform. The copper-plated Democratic senator, Henry Myers, even held a shadow convention and campaigned throughout the state, encouraging Democrats to expel the Nonpartisan League from the party and vote Republican. The hysteria reached such heights that Wheeler's life was repeatedly threatened, and he was almost tarred and feathered in multiple towns he tried to make speeches in, including Missoula. He jumped in his car, took his gun, jumped in his car, and beat him over over to the station, left the lights on his car running, and came into the station with his gun. They came up and rapped on the door, and he said, if you open that door, I'll fill you full of lead. And he meant it. He was there, cocked and I said, for God's sake, God. Oh, he said, I will. They opened that door. The scare tactics worked, and Dixon was swept into office as part of a nationwide Republican wave. The Montana Dixon was tasked to lead was a hard state to govern when he was sworn in in 1921. In his first address to the legislature on January 5th, Dixon soberly laid out Montana's desperate financial situation. The state government was functionally broke and would be saddled with a $2 million debt before the year was over. Most of the state's revenue had come from property tax, and as farm after farm went into foreclosure throughout the drought, that tax revenue dried up. Dixon proposed redistributing the burden. He called for a license tax on metal mines, which had enjoyed essentially a free ride. He proposed taxes on oil, coal, and gasoline, as well as an income tax and a progressive inheritance tax. Dixon even called for a tax on driver's licenses. While it was not as radical as the NPL's state ownership positions, it was a progressive call from Dixon, and one that represented a clear break with the company line. And so, given this horrible choice, they supported Dixon. (laughs) Well, Dixon didn't reciprocate after the election was over. He decided still they needed to pay taxes. Amalgamated had never really trusted Dixon farther than they could throw him, and had even tried to get him appointed Secretary of the Interior by the new Harding administration to conveniently remove him from office. But with Dixon safely inaugurated, the company reoriented their opposition toward a governing body that was much easier to control than the federal bureaucracy, the Montana State Legislature. 
copper-plated lawmakers introduced controversy-provoking smokescreen bills to distract public attention as Dixon's proposals were stymied in committee and defeated on the floor. Some of these smokescreen bills included a movie censorship bill and a loyalty oath bill that proposed a special oath of allegiance for teachers as a means of removing radicals from the educational system. There was also a so-called snooping bill, which proposed to create a massive law enforcement force of an unlimited number of special agents under the director of the state attorney general to enforce state prohibition and investigate supposed seditious activities. None of these passed, but none of them were supposed to. All they were supposed to do was dominate discussion during the session and draw attention away from the systematic obstruction of Dixon's real priorities. The company paired these tactics with a constant editorial campaign in the interlocking press against any attempt to raise taxes. At the end of Dixon's first session as governor, almost none of his priorities had been accomplished. Determined not to kowtow to the opposition of the interests, Dixon used his authority to call for an extraordinary special session of the legislature. This allowed Dixon to call lawmakers back and confine them to a limited agenda set by the governor. However, company obstructionists managed to grind up the gears of government once again, dominating the proceedings with extremely long and unnecessary investigations into specious and unprovable rumors of bribery. The company line had warned that Dixon's policies were dangerous to the mining industry that was critical to the state's economy, and, in a dramatic flourish, amalgamated shut down all their Butte mines for nine months just after the special session, citing the overwhelming burden of government interference. In a repeat with the fight of Heinze over the court's law, Amalgamated used its control over the livelihood of the whole state to once again hold Montana hostage. Then after Dixon got in, he passed the tax bill, and I went over to Helena during the legislature and urged the legislature to put through Dixon's program. Two years later, because they said they were going to close the mines and the mills and the factories, and I used it against him. Because after he got in, after he got in, they did close the mines. They did close the mills. They did foreclose the mortgages on the farmers. And everything they said was going to happen if I was elected happened after he. So the people then turned against him. Even after a favorable result in the 1922 midterm elections, Dixon was never able to pass meaningful tax reform in the legislature, and the economy of the state continued to flatline. Defeated in the legislature, Dixon turned to the people to enact his long-simmering mines tax, and succeeded in placing the issue up for popular referendum, along with his own re-election on the 1924 ballot. The company had enormous power in the legislature, and they just wouldn't let those bills pass. And so in 1924, Dixon got the metal mines tax on an initiative so the people could vote for it directly on the ballot. And uh, here you got all these broken down farmers 
have just one, they, everybody has one vote in the election. So, so it looked like it had a pretty good chance of passing. But this time, the nonpartisan league was nowhere to be found. And the company unified its opposition behind the Democratic nominee, a man named John E. Erickson, who attacked Dixon as an anti-business radical and preached a return to good old common sense government. And one of the one of the issues, there were two things in that election that are kind of significant. One of them was their candidate was a guy named Honest John Erickson, carbon copy of Henry Wilson. You know, I mean, he never had any record in the legislature. He'd been a district judge. Uh, he was a Scandinavian. Uh, they practically put a blade of straw in his mouth and had him go around the state and just talk common sense. You know, just a not a not a radical like this kind of guy that we've got. But anyway, he won the election, and they had him on the front page of their papers all the time, and never would put Dixon in the papers even unless they were vilifying him. The Anaconda Company thought, well, if we defeat Dixon, we'll defeat the the metal mines tax. I mean, they're obviously two separate things to vote for on the ballot, but they, they miscalculated. They defeated Dixon, but, they, but the metal mines tax passed. Dixon was soundly defeated, but his proposed mine tax passed, showing that a popular anti-company sentiment was there, but an accompanying pro-Dixon feeling was not. When, when Judge Erickson was the one that ran against Dixon, and Dixon said to him, how much money did the company spend on you to beat me? He said, not as much as they spent on you to beat Bert Wheeler. He defeated Joe Dixon, of course, because the Missoula Mercantile Company and the Anaconda Company unloaded Joe. Uh, the Missoula Mercantile Company was primarily responsible for helping Joe to become that. But he made a mistake, as you and I both know, and suggested that we have a mineral mines tax. Well, that was a red flag to some of the corporate bodies of this state, and Mr. Dixon was removed. Now, there's a connection between the Missoula Mercantile Company and the Anaconda Company? No, there never was a direct connection there, uh, except, yes, there is a connection in a way the history shows. I suppose you could say Marcus Daly was That clip is from an interview Ty Robinson did with Bob Brown for an oral history project in 2005. And believe me, we are definitely going to revisit it in our final chapter. While the mines tax was a popular progressive reform, it did nothing to alleviate the state's immediate crises, which in many ways were worse than when Dixon had entered office. Let me give you these figures. I, I, I hate them, but, but here they are. Uh, as simplified as I can make them. One out of every two farms in Montana went out of business between 1921 and 1925. Between 1920 and 1925, two million acres went or to put it another way, 11,000 farms simply blew away and disappeared. Farm indebtedness by 1924 was $175 million. The state bankruptcy rate was the highest in the United States. 214 banks failed or if you want to put it another way, 70% of all the banks in Montana failed 
farm tenancy increased from 2,000 to 10,000, and roughly 60 to 70,000 people quit the state. Again, we don't know where they went to. We couldn't keep track of them. Some of them went north, south, east, west, but they quit the state. Montana is broke, C.H. McLeod wrote to Hammond at the time. I know of no place in the U.S. that is in worse condition. The drought caused agricultural devastation, and continued shutdowns of amalgamated operations had placed the state in a position where McLeod thought, it is going to take a long while to recover and a great many banks and businessmen are going to be wiped out. However, big businesses like the Mercantile and Amalgamated were able to post profits and even expand into the vacuums left behind as smaller operations folded all around. Throughout the 1920s, Amalgamated expanded over the country and across the globe. They began mining magnesium and zinc in addition to copper and opened up huge mines in Poland, Chile, and Mexico. The Chilean operation was purchased from the Guggenheims in 1923 for $77 million and included the largest copper mine in the world. This gave them control of the entire global copper supply, which they intentionally overproduced and hoarded, maintaining an artificially high fixed price for copper. The company's regular shutdowns of their mines in Montana and around the world were part of this effort to control supply and fix the prices. By 1926, they had acquired the American Brass Company and were the fourth largest company in the world. Their holdings in Chile would eventually lead them to strong-arm the U.S. government into overthrowing the democratically elected Chilean government of Salvador Allende after he threatened to nationalize the country's copper mines. In 1929, after almost a full decade of brutal mini-depression in Montana, the rest of the world caught up. Rampant criminal speculation on a global scale sent the global economy into a nosedive and instituted the Great Depression. Um, Now, before we started this tape, you mentioned uh, when the uh, crash came in the late 20s, uh, do you have any recollection of that and how it affected your family? I have a specific experience of that. This is some audio from that interview with K. Ross Tool's brother, John, talking about their grandfather, Kenneth Ross, who ran the Anaconda Mill at Bonner. When the market started to go down, it went down awfully fast. In the late 1929, my grandfather, Ross, bedridden, he wasn't well. And every day when I would come home from school, they would ask me to call the broker, call someone, I can't remember who it was, to get the price of Anaconda stock. He was interested in that because all of his savings were in Anaconda stock. He was an uneducated man and he was not a sophisticated investor and he, the only thing he'd ever had experience with was Anaconda. So um, he had all of his savings. One day he, I gave him the price. The price really meant very little to me because I knew nothing about the stock market. And uh, he became upset. I said, what's the matter, Graham? He said, I just got kicked by a copper boot, he said. 
Yeah. All I told him and let him in, but I never forgot that. Sure. Because I cleaned him out. The stock went to five, and he thought, you know, it was seven degrees. Mm -hmm. And um, we cleaned him out, and he had, he was plenty of as Amalgamated grew to dominate most of the economy in Montana, more and more of the state's ordinary citizens' personal finances relied on the health of the company. Employees' retirement savings and benefits were paid out in Amalgamated stock, and businesses relied on the employment they offered to provide customers. In 1929, when the crash hit, it hit Amalgamated hard. But the real devastation was wrought upon the layperson, the stock price tanked, life savings vanished, employment dried up, and the whole state got kicked by a copper boot. Dixon never again held elected office after 1924. He ran for the Senate in 1928, again facing off against Burton Wheeler, but he lost handily. The Republican Party gave him a consolation prize of a mid-level position in the Interior Department, but by 1933, he was back in Missoula and essentially broke, and he died in 1934. And so, uh, so Dixon went down fighting for a cause, and uh, he never held public office again. And I think if you compare him to modern-day politicians who've got to take a poll before they scratch their nose, you know, and you, you see what a chance he took when he didn't have to take it, you know, I mean, he was a kind of a guy who probably could have been re-elected governor of Montana and none of us would have ever heard of him or cared about him, would have even known that he lived before. But because they got the metal mines tax passed, uh, it was important actually to the, to, to the running of state government, especially education, for decades afterwards. And uh, so he went down swinging for what he believed. Kind of a pretty good example of a fighting Quaker, don't you think? Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, and then the kind of a sad way that, that his life ended, too, his, uh, he had made a significant fortune and lost much of it during the stock market crash in 1921, 1929, and the depression that followed. And he died essentially broke in 1934. And he's buried yeah. right there. Okay. All right. Yeah. A great man, I think. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you so you much. You bet. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm not going to pretend that Joe Dixon is some kind of towering figure in Montana's memory. I think that most people in the state have probably never even heard of him. But to the extent that he is remembered within the white political mainstream of Montana, this is the way that he is remembered. The Fighting Quaker the quixotic, progressive warrior against the company. But that is a legacy with some really selective blinders. And what he did in regards to allotment of reservations was vastly more consequential than his brief spell as governor. And it is necessary to include that history to get an accurate sense of his legacy. This dissonance between the real and remembered Joe Dixon makes me think about a quote in Leslie Fielder's essay, The Montana Face, that I think strikes at the heart of something essential to Montana's own self-mythology, that Joseph Dixon is an extremely representative example of. On the side of the whites, 
there is, I think, a constantly nagging, though unconfessed, sense of guilt. It is a struggle which is more difficult for the Montana liberal to deal with than those other conflicts between the desired and the actual to which he turns almost with relief. The fight with the power company or the Anaconda Copper Mining Company for the instruments of communication and the possibilities of freedom. The latter struggles tend to preempt the liberal's imagination because on them he can take an unequivocal stand. But in respect to the Indian, he is torn with inner feelings of guilt. The knowledge of his own complicity in perpetuating the stereotypes of prejudice and discrimination. In that relationship, he cannot wholly dissociate himself from the oppressors. By his color, he is born into the camp of the enemy. There is, of course, no easy solution to the Indian problem. But so long as the Montanan fails to come to terms with the Indian, just so long will he be incapable of coming to terms with his own real past. Of making the adjustment between myth and reality upon which a successful culture depends. When he has learned that his state is where the myth comes to die, the Montanan may find the possibilities of tragedy and poetry for which so far he has searched his life in vain. As Fielder addresses there, until we bridge this gap between myth and reality and make room for the stories in our past with which we cannot take an unequivocal stand with our ancestors, we will never have an accurate understanding of our history. For the last word on Joe Dixon, I want to turn it over to Steve Lozar, the man from the town that bears Dixon's name. We look at at what Joe Dixon did as bad, horribly bad, but we also look at it in this day and age as an is. Okay, it happened. He is part of our collective history. Um, and, uh, And we look at the Anaconda Company, that's part of our collective history too. Um, uh, the parks, yes, but there's way more under the surface to those than there, including allotment for us. Affected all of us, and he affected not only the state of Montana, but pushing so hard in Congress for uh, for allotments took off across the whole nation. I mean, it happened in, in every reservation. Um, brutal. Absolutely brutal. Drove people to poverty. Drove my own family to poverty here. Um, my mother's family on another reservation. So I, uh, I think we do need to understand him. I think we do need to look and see what his effect is because it's still happening today. We're still being, we're still being uh, um, accosted for the, the land that we traditionally reserved for ourselves. This chapter, we saw Amalgamated grow to total domination across Montana. In the next chapter, we're going to see how that domination plays out on the ground on the Flathead Reservation with the construction of Kerr Dam. <laughs> 
And the good news, people shake hands with Mr. with our friend Frank M. Kerr. And here we are, adapting him as one of our tribes and people here for that we shall know him as our Kashmukwai. He's like. Land Grab is written and produced by me, John Hooks, along with Matt Newman and Rory Murphy over at The Mint. Please make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode. If you like the show, please do rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does get more eyes and ears on the show. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at LandGrabPod. A reminder that we are a donor-supported show. So if you would like to hear more, if you would like to know more about these things, if you want more land grab, please, please do consider making a contribution on the website.